and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host Nick. Hello. Thank you for joining us again today for another conversation about some of our favorite films. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Kinotomic. We are also open for abuse adulation and everything in between at kinatomic at gmail.com. Today we are kicking off our Halloween season. Um, so we are very, very excited about that. We finished our Bastikita specials, <laughs> so uh, please check out our, our um, Bastikita episodes if you're interested. And uh, we are kicking off this Halloween season with one of my favorite horror films of all time and perhaps the very first horror film of all time uh, Robert Wiener's Doctor, uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari 1920 yeah. so before I ask Nick what he thought of it here's a very quick synopsis Hit- hypnotist Dr. Caligari uses a somnambulist Cesare to commit murders so, finally, Nick, you got to watch this gorgeous film. What did you think of it? Yeah, I think finally is the right word. Um, so, I mean, I was really, really, really surprised by how much this film kind of got under my skin. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, when we watched uh, when we watched Metropolis, you know, I, I you know I remarked about how like the looks of the you know the the look of German expressionism um, kind of just added something or just ended creating the whole atmosphere of that film uh, in terms of what the future looks like and, and and just everything, just the way it looked. And what this does is, you know, the German expressionism just, it's just cranked up to 11. It's, <laughs> it's like, you know, I know that the, the traits, you know, it's like the, the exaggerated set, everything's all on a soundstage, it's all like exaggerated sets, you know, odd angled buildings and painted shadows, um, uh, like almost like kabuki like, um, kabuki theatre like uh, makeup for the performers, yeah. um, exaggerated movements, um, and it, that kind of like cranking up just. It really, 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 really got under my skin. And, you know, the, the the sets, the atmosphere, the costume design, you know, it, the whole, the way, the whole, it, the way it looked, you know, just kind of just drew me into that world of the film and, and just didn't let me go. And, and, and just, like I said, it just got under my skin. It really did, <coughs> which is really quite cool for a film from, from, from 1920. Um, you know, I, like I said, I, I was on edge through watching it. I felt uneasy. Kind of basically all the things you associate from a horror movie. I just didn't expect it to come from a film from 1920. Yeah. Um, it, it, sounds, it sounds really, it sounds really, um, I don't know. Like, obviously I'm accustomed to horror movies, like more modern horror movies and, and you know, films from post-1960, 1970 and how those kind of horror movies kind of end up eliciting a reaction and obviously this is i think this is my first silent film from that genre as well so i'm quite surprised 
how how it kind of got to me. Yeah. Um. But you've never seen a silent horror before. No, which kind of links on with what we'll be talking about next week, but we'll get onto that in a bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah I love horror you know, so much, and I love horror movies. So it is, yeah. I mean, I said, I said, um, I said last week. You know, I'm, I'm going to be fulfilling some kind of like major gaps in my horror film genre knowledge uh, in over the next three episodes. Um, really, really embarrassing ones as well. And, and this, I mean. The next one and then the last one we're doing it, it probably more embarrassing than this but considering how much I've heard about this film I should have at least seen it by now same with when I saw Metropolis you know I should have at least seen Metropolis by now but but clearly not um, it was a, meant a to be on the podcast it was meant to be on the podcast you know even if I am a, a film studies master student that really should know better um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, the, the the story itself kind of has almost at the start of the film. It started starts off with a with a, almost like a rhyming ancient mariner kind of thing going on with you know sitting down and and I'm going to tell you my tale of what had happened to me, and you know I was immediately like, oh hello, what's going on here? Why is that woman looking really weirdly? You know, clearly something has gone on that's damaged her in some way. Um, and. Uh, we end up kind of meeting Dr. Caligari and immediately I felt like he is someone who, who looks so menacing and, and unhinged. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, it, it, and then when you meet the som, so, somambulist, somnambulist, um, the, you know, Cesar, it, kind of what's the word it's almost like a you know he's like a, a skeletal figure almost he's like this specter that's doing you, you know so you're trying to question whether he's doing the will of himself or whether he's doing the will of dr caligari um and it, it it's it's so it's just really really effective it's just really really effective and it, it, like i said it kind of had me at times kind of questioning the motives of cesar like i said whether you know he he was doing you know what he meant to be what he wanted to do or whether yeah. he was doing doing the will of dr caligari and there was almost like a, a kind of made him feel like a, a kind of like a sympathetic figure almost um the way dr caligari himself worked looked you know he, he just just like just so unhinged and you know there's something not right about this man kind of thing even with the whole german expressionism look of the of the film and the look of the actors, you know, you knew immediately there's not something quite right sitting with him. Um, something sinister. So yeah, I mean, you get these sort of amazing shots of there's an amazing shot of like the shadowy figure of Caesar kind of killing. Was it wasn't really killing? It's like attacking almost. And then you get then times you get this close up of his face, um, and you just kind of really. It's just like really horrific to look at, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can't, it feels like of... you can't really look straight at it because you'll you'll get hypnotized. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I was to have any kind of complaint about the film, I think it would have to be the ending, like the final twist of the film. It kind of really bugged me that. Oh no, he wasn't. 
you know, he was actually mad, this didn't happen, all the cast that you saw were characters in the insane asylum, and the infamous Dr. Caligari isn't in fact a man that belongs in, in, in a cell, in a padded cell, he is in fact the man running the cell, the insane asylum, and that kind of just, it just, I don't know, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way that did, I was like, well... that just seemed like a bit of a cop-out ending. Um, so, and it didn't feel like in touch with the rest of the film as well either. Like, I felt like if the film should have gone any kind of direction with that framing device of telling you my story, it should have end. It should have ended with something happening. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I I don't know. It, it's, Is that it just, yeah? The ending just didn't kind of sit right. But the rest of the film was was utterly yeah utterly fantastic i'm glad to kind of knock that one off off my cool. watch list okay any other notes no 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 that's okay yeah. um it's interesting that you you picked up on on the kind of yeah cop-out ending so to speak and when because i rewatched it this afternoon and I felt, I mean, when I first watched it, I, 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 I probably would have agreed with you that it was like a bit more like, yeah, just cop out. But now I rewatched it and it, because it ends up with a close up on, on Dr. Caligari's face or the uh, director of the asylum. But it just made me think that what if he was the madman and he just drove all these people insane just to ha just to have a job? He's hypnotized everybody. Yeah. Just that's yeah. A, that's a good theory, I suppose. Yeah. Um. It just yeah, because you see his face, and there's something absolutely insane in those eyes. And I think yeah, I think Werner Krauss, the uh, actor playing Doctor Caligari, was just incredible. And his um face and and hairstyle was, I think, were. I read that they were modelled on Arthur Schopenhauer, the philosopher. So, um, yeah. I also found that director Robert Wiener uh, added the opening and closing scenes to Hans uh, Janowitz's and Karl Meyer's original script in order to make the film more commercially viable. Because um, it was, yeah, they thought that it would be too dark and not attract audiences to the film. Also, it is often speculated that the all it was a delusion twist was to deflect suspicion that the film painted authority as insane. <laughs> and <laughs> so yeah. Um and yeah. I really I mean it's one of my favorite films um of all time. It's just it it op it's, I think it's just heralds the the start of German expressionism and it just uh, it kind of peaks with it as well. I mean, I love Metropolis and all the Murnau films. I just adore them. But this is just, there's something so special and so unique about it. And I think that comes with with it being very, very low budgeted. Um, they say that necessity is the mother of all invention. And I think this is what happened with, with this production. Because the sets were all made of paper with shadows painted on them. This was, again... Post uh, post World War One Germany, so everything you was rationed, like even electricity. So the final look of and feel of the film was based on low budget practicalities and creative inspiration, like you said, Kabuki and all that. Electricity was rationed, so 
director Robert Vini simply just painted lights, light beams on backdrops instead of like having lights, which is why you kind of see that it's so dark. Um, and of course, shooting on on, on confined sets forced him to use very unusual camera angles. So it was kind of like, yeah, they didn't really know how to do it. So they were like, okay, let's just improvise and see what we can do with all the very little money that we've got. I think the actors got paid like £30 a piece or something like that. They had a very, very small budget. And to continue the idea of, of like starving artists, which we're very accustomed to these days, um, the writers, Hans Janowitz and Karl Meyer, were introduced in June 1918, and they were both very, very poor. And uh, Meyer was in love with this girl, with this actress called Gilda Langer, and she encouraged them to write a film together. And he kind of wrote the character, the Jane character, for her, although she didn't end up being cast in the role. It was it was Neil Dagover who got cast, and I think. She did a really, really good job, and I've decided to um, try to imitate the makeup for my Halloween party. Like, you're gonna have to post that up on Twitter. Of course. So watch this face. I'm gonna try to to <laughs> get my Jane Olsen look for Halloween. <laughs> and I yeah, think, think... yeah, go on. I, I was no, no. I was gonna, I was gonna say like. Like kind of linking in with what was kind of going on at the time almost um you know the post world war one the way the way Germany was at the time, the way Europe was at the time, and that you know that the, the the kind of the figure of dr Caligari is almost like this what's the word like the looming specter of darkness that is soon to overcome not just Germany but you know, Europe yeah, in general. Yeah. Although, if you think about, I mean, I think it might have the, the specter of darkness might have been a bit more or less exclusive to Germany if we're looking at like the history. Um, most of the re- I mean, the rest of the Europe was very, very in, in a very bad shape, of course, France included. But they kind of like, okay, let's just try to rise above the situation. But because of all the stuff that had, because Germany did lose the war and they had massive, massive debt, so they had to be penitent about what had happened. And of course, they lost a lot of territories, so they were very, very unhappy, which is kind of why you see this, like, yeah, specter of darkness looming. And which is why it was so easy for the Nazis to come to power. Because, you know. They were the people weren't happy, so they had to find a savior. Yeah, they were almost hypnotized. Yeah. <laughs> by a mad, by a madman. Yeah. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like there's anything going on like that at the moment, is there? Mm, no, 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 not no, at all. No. Um, speaking of madness and 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 sort of psychology and psychiatry. Writer Karl Meyer feigned madness to avoid military service, <laughs> with, which led him to intense examinations from a military psychiatrist, and the experience kind of left him very distrustful of authority, and the psychiatrist kind of served as a model for the Caligari character, and which is I mean, why it, I think that if, it was it was 
the idea of of like the twist can be a twist in itself. Like the psychiatrist is the madman made sense to me. I mean, if if he deliberately kind of cut out a military service to feign some sort of <laughs> mental illness, and then was kind of examined by a medical examiner, I wonder why he made then, him do. Then, yeah, and then like, <laughs> and then got like you know, resentment because of that. He kind of put himself in that scenario in the first place. Yeah, maybe he wasn't saying. <laughs> maybe he just, maybe he, he pulled a black, black hat and just put two pencils up his nose and put a pants on his head. Yeah, possibly. Wibble. Um, so, yeah, I found it a really kind of, like, creepy thing that inspired the film. And it made me think of Pennywise for some reason. Um, so the other writer, Hans Janowitz, claims to have gotten the idea when he was at a carnival one day. And he saw a strange man lurking in the shadows. And then the next day he heard that a girl was brutally murdered at the carnival. And then he went to the funeral and he saw the same man lurking around. Huh. He had, of course, he had no proof that the strange man was the murderer, but he just felt this idea. And it just made me think of, like, you know, the evil lurking in the shadows being anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and I just wanted to sort of move a bit on to the cast. So, did you recognize the actor playing uh, Cesare? No, I don't think I did. <laughs> was I meant to? Yeah, you were meant who was, to. Who was he? He is a legend. Um, his name is Conrad Veidt, and he was in Casablanca. I was going to say, I recognise that name. <laughs> yeah, he was a... He was a hero, more or less, so... Even though he played the the, the Nazi um, general, whatever officer in in Casablanca, he was a very very anti-Nazi from the very beginning. So he um, he was active um, in England, and he he fought against him. He actually gave most of his estate to the war effort and he because he was living he lived in England right after escaping Germany and he was active in England during the war he's been so he even as a performer he'd been known in Germany as as a staunch anti-Nazi and he came under scrutiny of the Gestapo and a decision was made to assassinate him and he I don't know how he found out about the plot and he managed to escape and ever since then, he was just very, very much anti, um, anti-Nazi, and he he did, yeah. So he, oh yeah, also he was he most of the re like one of the reasons that he was flagged by the Gestapo was that he'd married a Jewish woman. So then they ran away to to Britain and and then to Hollywood. Um. I think some of the notable films that you might have seen in, him in, um, which, oh, oh, here's a quiz for you, you comic book fiend. <laughs> um, okay. You should know him uh, because he is the man who inspired... Yes? No? 
the Joker. Oh, right. Um, oh, shit, I knew this. Um, God, what's the name of that bloody film? The Man Who Laughs. The Man Who Laughs. Oh, yeah. In 1928, huh. directed by Paul Lenny, and he plays The Man Who Laughs. And you'll, if you watch cool. this film, you'll see Mary Tobin from Phantom of the Opera in it as well. Oh, it's all interlinked. <laughs> it's all interlinked. So yeah, as as a as a comic book nerd, you should you should know his name because he he's his his appearance in The Man Who Laughs is what inspired the drawing of of the Joker character in the comic books That's by really cool. Bob Kane. Bob Kane, yeah. So yeah, That's really cool. yeah. And um, yeah, he was he was a very very good man, and he fought against Nazis his whole life. Uh, another film that I I wanted I wanted sort of name is a nineteen nineteen film I think called Different from the Others, and I th I saw it at the BFI. It was restored, but there were some some bits of it that were missing because it wasn't fully. Um, oh, let me find. Yeah, different from the others. Nineteen nineteen. Um, it's not. It some some bits of it is, are missing, and I think only fifty minutes of of the whole film of are found, and some uh, still images. So they kind of pieced it together for a wide release uh, as part of. I think it was part of a um, queer festival, um, something, and it's basically about two male musicians who fall in love and then someone else blackmails them and it it takes a, t a tragic turn and this was a 1919 film and it portrays gay love in a very very endearing way and it it just blew my mind when i watched it because it was just very like it was very like you know we are different but we are not different we're just people and it was just brilliant, and he was—you could see that he was such a talented actor. And I could, yeah, I could talk about him and how great he is. But I'm gonna stop there. But yeah, if you can, if you find what uh, different from the others, watch it. I'm not sure if it's uh, on—I'm not sure if it's on Criterion, but um, I'll give it—I'll—I'll I'll try to find it. It's, I'll add yeah. it to my list. Yeah, it's—it's it's a very early film that I think he had. It was. It started with there was a decree that had outlawed homosexuality, and it, they were like on the hunt for gay people. Yeah, and the copy that is exists is quite fragmented, so you kind of understand what the idea is. But it's yeah, it's quite a sad film. And I think it was the first homosexual story that was ever put. So yeah. And I think that's me done with the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Okay. Um, no, th uh, all that kind of background information was really, really interesting. I really am quite annoyed at myself that I didn't recognize Conrad Veed. And <laughs> I'm also annoyed at myself that I couldn't remember the name of the film that inspired <laughs> Mr. J. So, um, yeah, no, I, that's... No, thank thank you. That, that was really, 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 really good. Well, yeah, he's he's a hero of mine. I I, re I really, I mean, he was always at the forefront of all the good causes from the very beginning, and you could see that he he had a big heart. 
Yeah, his, his performance as Cesar in, in this was yeah, you know, if, if 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 Dr. Caligari was like the unhinged madman, as it were, like you know, Cesar was kind of like I said, like this almost like a spectre of death and madness. That kind of just like it was, yeah, it was it was quite quite really 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 quite incredible. Um, so we go from. We go from that. I actually had a really, really good segue kind of lined up for the for the, the two films, but I can't remember it now. Um, <laughs> so I'm literally just going to go straight into it because at the end of the day, that's what Texas Chainsaw Massacre does. Oh. It literally dumps you straight into it. Um, it doesn't build up any kind of suspense. Um, oh. This isn't a film like you know its contemporary, say like The Exorcist, for example which doesn't kind of build up any kind of like for feeling suspense. This film just goes straight out with it and it really doesn't let up. And then it keeps cranking and cranking and cranking up. Um, So this is, like I said, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, directed from the great genre horror director, the late great genre horror director, Toby Hooper. Um, So I've got a... Uh, brief synopsis before I get Danny's opinion. Uh, when Sally hears that her grandfather's grave may have been vandalised, she and her paraplegic brother Franklin set out with her friends to investigate. After a detour to their family's old farmhouse, they discover a group of crazed, murderous outcasts living next door. As the group is attacked one by one by the chainsaw-wielding Leatherface, who wears a mask of human skin, the survivors must do everything they can to escape. And that kind of synopsis kind of makes it seem as though people survive longer than than they actually do. Um, <laughs> but this is Danny's first viewing. And like I said last week, it's always exciting to get somebody who's not seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre before to actually sit down and watch it. So, Danny, what did you think? Okay. Um... You like scary movies. You, you did tell me you like scary movies and you like horror movies. So I'm, I'm ready for this. Okay, so when I, I, I do like scary movies. I do... I, okay, but I think this is kind of a different level of scary. This is kind of gory slasher. Although you don't see that much blood. Nope. And it's just... I don't know what I was expecting. I thought I did, but I didn't know. So I I didn't I knew of this film. I kind of knew what it was all about. I had seen one or two scenes from it, like whenever a like top best, most gruesome horror flicks would be on TV. So I kind of knew that that Sally would make it. Um, I think I might have seen her face at in in the trunk of the, the uh, in the back of the other, the the guy's car who saves her. So I was kind of expecting it to get to that point where she's covered in blood and running away, and I don't know. It it made me feel very very uncomfortable and a bit sick. It actually, I felt a bit queasy for the rest of the afternoon yesterday. I don't. I can't say I enjoyed it because I don't think you're meant to. I mean, if you, if you are, you should be kept away from society. <laughs> I think that's the whole point. It's made. It's it's supposed to make you feel very uncomfortable. Um, I was scared, and even if I knew in the back of my head that Sadie would make it, 
you know, the final goal trope where we all know and love. I found myself screaming at the screen that she should run faster because she wasn't running, she wasn't very fast at all and she was just like, what are you doing? As for the rest of the gang, oh god, they're so stupid. It's like, <laughs> get out, you know, just don't go, I mean, who in their right mind, right, finds a tooth on the porch of a house that they've never been in before and decides to walk in? Who? Yeah. Who? Yeah. Oh, here's a tooth. Ooh, a human tooth at that. Um, I'm going to go in and check it out. I'm not armed. I'm just, a t a, you know, a youngster. It was just so frustrating. I was like, you just don't go in the house. And then everybody, everybody went in and they all got, like, murdered. Oh, dear. I mean, oh, and it was just, like, so... It was, like, deliverance taken up to 12. Oh, I read that Guillermo del Toro became a vegetarian after watching this film. And briefly, I, briefly became a vegetarian after watching film, yeah. I don't blame him. I think I was more or less a vegetarian, and I think I, now, right now I can't in, imagine eating meat ever again. Um, I don't know how long it will last, hopefully a long time, because I just can't bear the look of meat at the moment. I can't. Um, it was, it was very uncomfortable. I mean, I knew I had to watch it because I, I enjoy horror. But just to be clear, I enjoy horror films, but this is more than that. This is just gore and, and slasher and I mean when I say I enjoy horror I, I enjoy like horror haunting stories and a bit like psychological thrillers like you know the cabinet of Dr. Caligari where you know you have or psycho psycho that, that sort of horror but this is like I mean I would seeing the, the leather face and those three masks that he wears oh god i needed a stiff drink afterwards that's all i can say yeah yeah um but yeah i mean it's it's halloween so we might as well get really really gory and yeah but i mean this film isn't necessarily gory though like <sighs> compared to, compared to one of the films we're talking about in a couple of weeks time this this film isn't isn't gory. There's there's hardly any blood in it. Yeah, um, but he's... everything is everything is all implied horror. Like it it you don't see any any apart from like there's like two instances like the cut on the hand and then the cut on the like the slash on the arm. I'm pretty sure there's no actual kind of um like what you would kind of expect like a, a knife going into somebody or like you know, yeah the chainsaw kind of cutting off a limb or anything like that it is the, all like it's implied. the atmosphere it's yes, the, i mean yes. you go into a house okay so you go into a house and you see bones scattered arranged you see lampshades that were made of human skin you see feathers oh by god the feathers <laughs> okay, full disclosure, I am afraid of feathers for some reason. I have a phobia. It's 
I can't explain it because that's what phobias are. So I didn't know exactly what to be most frightened of, the, the feathers the or the bones or, you know, the whole atmosphere in the house. It was icky. It was just really plain, like, just runaway scary. Did you, did you, did you jump at that moment? Where, um, no, um, but I where, was just no, very, I mean, very no, uncomfortable. No, I meant like the moment when Kirk, is it, I think it's, it's, I think it's Kirk, goes through the door for the first time and the metal door, well, you don't know it's metal, but he goes through the door and it's this long shot and then yeah. there's like the, 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 the thump on the head and then you see him twitching and then dragged away and the leather face just pulls the shutters too and it kind of lingers on that moment for a bit. <sighs> Um, yeah, yeah that was yeah it was because it just it reminded you of of the conversation in in the in the car in the van where the guy oh uh, another thing that made me very uncomfortable was how these people were like I don't know yeah like deliverance it was just so who are these people do these people really exist they we'll were just like that. ridiculous, like I don't know, savages. Oh, it yeah. And he was talking about how it's like the the, the hammer versus the the air gun. Was it the air gun? Yeah. It made me think, of course, of the um, Anton Shigor from No Country for Old Men. But that's that's such a good film. I don't know. I mean, I appreciated the craftsmanship and the eerie quality to it and how it just how it just showed how like grotesque people can get and how savages can behave i think it's fair to say it to call these people savages i think it's fair to say that yes they are um, cannibals after all yeah, I mean, they were cannibals, so to speak. They're just like, yeah, it was just very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of like the perfect first time reaction, really. Yeah. Um, you're not exactly Nicholas Rending Raffin who watches it on a, you know, late night and has it ingrained in his memory as a... I think, what did he say? Like eleven year old. Judy de Cornell said she was like a seven when she first saw it. Mm. Um, I mean, now you know. I use we had that exact those two examples. You know, when we spoke about the Neon Demon and then when we spoke about Raw. You know, I said that both directors kind of had this like young exposure to to this film and how it kind of like ingrained on their memories. I wasn't. I wasn't. I was like nineteen when I first saw this um so over the age of when i was i would be able to go see it in the cinema um so i can't imagine what it would be like for somebody that young to see this film and you're you know you're now the same age as you know roughly the same age as me and i can't imagine you know you'll you'll, you'll have this kind of amazing reaction to it almost like you've almost sounded like you've almost had a this reaction i to almost it. had one yeah because i mean it, it it felt really real it felt that you were there with those people and you're like trying to understand why people behave the way they do i mean it was a family of three generations of 
really disturbed people in that house. Yeah, yeah. It was just, yeah. yeah, it was kind of like, it was it was a bit disturbing to see that the people like that really exist. And of course it made me think, because I think that the whole idea was that it was supposed to be based on true events. And it kind of was because you have the Ed Gein character who was a real man and who inspired everybody from Psycho to Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, steal, stealing my notes there, Danny. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. You go. No, I, I think I, no, I, I was going to say like the film doesn't. It does, like I said, it doesn't. It starts off with kind of like this disclaimer that this is based on true events, you know, and it, it clearly like it's a marketing ploy. It's to you know to get the film to be seen by more people, and, and you know it it worked. Um, you know, it's a, a tactic that, you know, famously used by, by the Blair Witch Project of, you know, this is a true story. Um, and it, wouldn't, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me that people would think that this, you know, based on a true story. Um, and, it, you know, then, then we end up with these kind of like the still blackness and where we kind of like overhearing some like movement. And then there's the, like the the flash photography, and you see the the images of the, of the corpse, um, these close up images of the corpse, and they're like flashing images. And because of the, the yeah. sound of that bulb, um, and the sound of the 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 the, the, the um the, the the sound, I don't really know how to describe it. It's um like a creaking sound almost, but a lot more kind of uh kind of uh, puncturing as it were and it, it immediately puts you on edge in in such a way that i don't think I, there's very few films that have managed to do that i think seven might come close um the introduction the the, the first scene of seven the first scene or the the you know the title sequence of seven um yeah. kind of does the same kind of effect of what this kind of does the the these these images um, and then it lingers on the, the image of this desecrated corpse um, and a news report about what's been happening and and and, and then it kind of and then it kind of just doesn't really it, it kind of you're immediately put on edge and it kind of just doesn't let up from there like the film doesn't allow you to kind of get used to what's going on even with the kids in the in the van kind of talking to each other and stuff it kind of just doesn't do that. Uh, Franklin falls out of his wheelchair and then they pick up the hitchhiker and then it kind of gets a bit weird from there and then they go to the gas station and you think this is a bit weird what's going on and it it gets what I mean it kind of and then you go to that house oh. you know the empty house um you know the one that their grandfather owns and oh. you know because it's all dilapidated and run down you know and you're just kind of feel a bit off by it and then we get to, then we get to the the, the house of uh, that belongs to to uh, Leatherface and his family. Um, <laughs> when I I remember making the note uh, on a letterbox review a while ago about this film that I mean, say what you will about the crimes of you know, say what you will about the butchering and what have you, but those kids were technically trespassing. <laughs> um, so maybe in the letter <laughs> yeah. of the law. <laughs> 
Well, like I said, who would go into a house where you see that there's... It looks a bit sh weird, shady and whatnot, and there's a tooth on the porch. Yeah, I mean... Would you go into a so, house that you... No, I, I, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, yeah, no. The, so this film was was, was made for, for $140,000, uh, which kind of roughly translates to about 700k translated to, you know, inflation, adjusted for inflation. Um, and made uh, th just over $30 million in the box office, you know, making it, you know, one of the successful horror films of, of the era. Um, I think Halloween obviously outdid that. Halloween was made for a lot cheaper and made a lot more money, um, if I remember rightly. That's all right, yeah. Um, and then, you know, this was even despite mixed reviews. Um, you know, it, 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 audiences went and saw the film. And obviously now it's rightfully considered as, as, one, as the greatest or, or one of the greatest horror films of all time. Um, like I said, you know, it has this disclaimer that this true story disclaimer at the start that you know it's not it's not actually based on true events. Um, however, as Danny said, the family and Leatherface were kind of based on the crimes of of Ed Gein. Um, I got a message this morning from Danny saying that she was watching Mindhunter for the first time. Um, which kind of I I I wasn't gonna I didn't kind of make this connection until until kind of now, but the readings of this film link directly in with with Mindhunter, Danny. I I, I wanted to bring this so up I in the podcast. So I should keep watching. Well, no, I just my what I mean is, if anybody doesn't know the the the, the rough plot synopsis of of Mindhunter, the general thing is like the creation of the like the FBI serial killer profile is yeah. how they came up with you know the idea of the serial killer at the time in in the early 70s um and obviously this film is is based is is filmed in 1974 there are a lot of readings of this film that link in with the idea of um the the vietnam war of young people being psychologically damaged psychologically damaged being killed being um, the idea of the horrors of war coming yeah. home for viewers to see for the first time. Um, because you think about the Vietnam War was the first war that was shown actually on television for, for a lot of people. Um, and these were the upsetting images and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of links in with that. And that's kind of what Mindhunter ends up talking about as well. Um, you know... It, about the, the the changing culture of the seventies, about the rise of the serial killer. Um, that's why Ed Gein was such a, a prominent figure at the time, is because, and it wasn't just him. You know, in the the fifties, sixties, seventies, there was a rise in serial killers because the arc, the the case is is like the world is becoming more openly messed up, as it were, <laughs> mm. and so involved people can't really handle it and end up. You know, you know what I mean. So we end. That's what we end up with. We end up with characters like Leatherface, characters like Norman Bates, characters like Hannibal Lecter, um, because they are so kind of in. They're so kind of intrinsically linked with with real life serial killers at the at the time. 
Um, I know you said about whether families like this kind of exist. What the kind of that family represents, in my opinion, is the old ways of kind of like the isolationism of America about this way that the, 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 the America that's kind of inward, the America that's kind of incest almost inbred that mm. doesn't see outside of its immediate point of view and then reacts violently when it is kind of confronted or invaded upon, which is very much a point of view, which is coming is very, very relevant to, to, to this day. Um, with what's going on in, in Trump's America. Um, that's kind of like my reading of what the family is. Um, I the thought family, so the too. Source... It, it made me think of deliverance and it made me think of like, you know, the very, very isolated, very small inbred communities, really. Yes, yeah. Um, it, it obviously inspired the, uh, the family from the X-Files episode Home, which is one of the most famous episodes of television. It's, uh, it was only aired once on TV um, and it was never aired again until like a few years ago. Um, I don't think I've seen it. I would really recommend that episode home because it is, like I said, it's one of the best episodes of television, horror episodes of television ever made. But it very much is inspired by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and by Leatherface and his family. Um so yeah i mean the film is is very very like you said it's very very effective in its use of atmosphere mise-en-scene sound you know extreme close-ups to kind of create its horror you know this is this is a film of implied horror you know it uses the the atmosphere and the the editing to kind of force a this kind of state of mind upon the viewer and you know danny <laughs> clearly felt that yes <laughs> um I, I did. So, this is where we kind of get a bit funny. So, the film was actually originally intended by Toby Hooper to get a PG rating. <laughs> he worked very... He worked... Apparently, he worked with the MPAA to try and obtain a PG rating. But, but due oh. to the cinematography and the effectiveness of the film, it was then given an R rating with about eight minutes cut out of the film. Um, this is in the US. So over here in the UK, um, the film was not given a rating by the BBFC. Uh, it was refused a rating. Um, it was refused a rating twice in Australia. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of seen as one of those films that's kind of, it was banned over here in a long time. It kind of fell in with the, the video nasties era of the eighties and, and, and early nineties. Um, you know, the film that, that nobody really could see, um obviously it's not an extreme case of like the exorcist or anything like that i don't think but over here it kind of led to a lot of people um the, the 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 a lot of people wanting to see the film but they couldn't um but okay. they could end up rent yeah that was really, really really weird thing so it was like a case of it was one of these things where you could go see a film in the cinema but if you were to rent the movie on VHS, then you can get arrested, if I remember right. Wow. Um, that was, yeah, it was insane, the the, the video nasties era. Um, a lot of people, Mark Kermode is, is, is a prime, he, he knows a lot more about that, and I recommend finding out his work on that. Kim Newman as well um, has written quite a lot about that, and I think it was in his book Nightmare Movies, um, which is fantastic. Um 
and yeah, so the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was was refused uh, a rating over here in the UK. Um, it it was you couldn't see it in cinemas because the way it worked over here in terms of cinemas, even though it was refused a rating kind of nationwide, councils were allowed to what like screen films. The only councils that kind of refused to screen this film were Surrey, Sussex, and Glasgow. <laughs> which is quite weird. Yeah, um, that's a bit random. But, but the film didn't get a release um, on it. Like, it didn't get a release over here. Um, it was kind of seen as like banned, really, up until uh, 1999 when it was re-released, um, and it was finally given. It was finally given a, a an 18 rating, hmm. and then a year later, uh, it was it was shown on on Channel Four. Um, I got a couple of quotes on Channel from, Four. It was shown on Channel Four, yeah, late night Channel Four. Channel Four in the in the the nineties, uh, the late nineties, early two thousands, well, most of the two thousands actually. Actually, correction: the eighties, nineties, and the early two thousands was very very good at showing these kind of things, mm. kind of movies. Um, it was really the only place their 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 audit at the time was very much like we want to show stuff that you can't see on BBC and ITV. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was Channel 4. Um, oh. And then I've got a couple of quotes from, from two tabloids, actually. <laughs> uh, UK tabloids. So the Daily Mail at the time said, if ever a film should be banned, this is it. Uh, the News of the World uh, said, this is about the sickest carnival or slaughter ever seen. Why did the Greater London Council let this nightmare through? <laughs> um, clearly, just yeah, <sighs> fucking fucking tabloids, man. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a lot of people kind of have this view of the film as kind of expectation of the film i know i certainly did of like this expectation of the film being truly truly horrific in terms of showing stuff that i never thought i'd see kind of thing and it does in a way but i was very very when i first saw it, it was, i was very very surprised about the lack of blood that you see on screen uh definitely compared to to one of the films we're talking about in our halloween season so yeah i mean there's a couple of bits uh i kind of want to think of like a couple of facts there's an excellent um article by jennifer wood um which is like an interview with toby hooper before he passed away on the film's 40th anniversary um called 11 things you didn't know about the texas chainsaw massacre i will link to this in the show notes um there's just a couple of things in here that i kind of want to pick up on for you you listeners um it says exactly what i said about the film kind of being like this allegory for what was going on at the time with with uh the vietnam war um so yeah the the shoot itself was was really really excruciating um for for its actors um the uh, if i remember this rightly um, Marilyn Burns, that five minute sequence of her being tied up to the chair and kind of being, you know, the, that, that horrible sequence, that took 26 hours to shoot. That was a total of 26 wow. hours. So it obviously wasn't all done at once, but she, for, for a total of 26 hours, she had to sit there, be tied up, be gawked at, be almost 
like psychologically mentally tortured by these characters um in this horrific kind of set um you know the, the film was shot in the middle of summer in texas so it's very very uncomfortable for everybody looks very um, icky yeah um Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface, uh, wasn't allowed to have his mask ma- uh, washed or his costume washed um, because it was it was kind of made out of latex and it was kind of like they didn't want to wash it or didn't want to clean it just in case it changed its look mm. um, because you know they were on such a tight budget. So yeah, it was it was very very hard for for everybody on on set. Um, no least no least was was Marilyn Burns. Um. Yeah. So the quote quote here from from Hansen about that dinner sequence, the whole dinner scene is burned in my memory. I just think because of the misery of it. At that point, we were really just on the verge of mental collapse. And Marilyn told me about how awful it was for her because she was terrified, just being tied to a chair, and then having these men looming over her constantly. She said it was really unnerving. I think that whole scene was certainly the most intense part of the movie, and I think all of us were slightly insane by then. Mm, I bet yeah the, the and then you get these kind of like really amazing and extreme close-ups of marilyn burns's eyes um and you really kind of you feel the fear almost i don't i think not many films have kind of come close to capturing that and then we kind of get this this fever dream chase at the end uh with the sunset and then sally you know just screaming exhausted crying with grief and relief and and then you know gun like i said leatherface just he just swings his chainsaw around and the it's such a powerful powerful ending to a film and you you do feel almost kind of of, i I still have her screaming in my in my head yes um this yeah the, the the film is is very very so it's so so amazing um I just got one last thing. Um, the last point on this Esquire article makes the point that the film today would obviously making it today would be impossible. You can never make this film today, which is true. Um, you know, Hooper points that towards the fact the fact that at the time he was kind of was his own. He couldn't. He didn't have any executives or anything kind of yeah. hanging over him. Um, and. <laughs> Um, so he, he was not, he wasn't really, uh, he was, he, he says here, the films I liked with European films, Fellini, Antonini, Truffaut, and I didn't see any reason why if I delivered the fear and the tension, it couldn't be a good motion picture with characters like a painting is a painting. And if it good, it's lasts. Um, and I think he, he is, he made, you know, like I said, one of the greatest horror films of all time. And yeah it it's it's truly truly a masterpiece and i'm really really happy you 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 didn't see it and you actually were able to watch it for the first time yeah um i mean it is it is incredible and it is you could see it is a brilliant film and it gets you in in there and i think that's what great cinema does yeah i think i think we we we've had some like we've had some you know like really great films on this podcast if that makes any sense um but i think for me like i think the texas chainsaw massacre may be like 
maybe the greatest one i think in terms of where it stands mm. in terms of like it's i mean this is a podcast where we've had we've had you know in the mood for love uh we've had metropolis and Paradiso, ran gone with the wind but i think i think for film like the texas chainsaw massacre i think this is one that's I think maybe Metropolis is probably the one that is is kind of on an equal pegging in terms of like influence, in terms of I don't know the sheer power of the film. Um, it's quite a bold statement. Yeah, well, I'm I'm all about the bold statement. Okay. I'm all about the bold statement. So I'm not you know I'm not belittling the other films we've had on the podcast. I just think that, that for me the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is one of the greatest films of all time. Um, so, yeah. So that, I think, unless Danny has anything more to say, I, no, I think we're done. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think that's it for me. With with Texas Chainsaw I mean, I don't think I'm going to rush to see it again anytime soon. But I do agree that it, it is a great piece of, of cinema. Yeah. I really want to see this. I really want to see a version of this film that's, you know, like on a on a fourth generation VHS tape. You know, <laughs> like I really think like texturally that that really add to the film. Yeah. Like I think there's something like some when scratches I, when I watch... in in the corners. Or... Yeah. Like the, the grainy warping... bit, like every other frame or so. Yeah, a bit of warping of the image kind of thing. I think it would be really really cool. And I really, really like because I, I mean, I, I saw this as part of my film studies course, my degree, and I, I you know, I seen it before. But my my lecturer at the time was like, the only copy he had on him was the Blu-ray transfer, which he didn't want to show because it was too clean. And I, I was the same. I felt the same after watching that version of the film. That the, the the transfer it was like this 4K transfer. It just, it just looks too clean. It looks too. I don't know, like, it doesn't look right. I think this film is, like, one of the few films where you think the dirtier the film, the the better, because it's just going to make it much more of an intense experience, I think, for the viewer. Um, so, yeah. Uh, if anybody out there is, knows of where I can find a fourth-generation VHS copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, please let me know. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So... So what have you got on for next week? So next week is part two of our uh, Halloween trilogy. Um, we are moving on to vampires. Uh, the first of which is is a blind spot of mine, an embarrassing blind spot of mine. Uh, Nosferatu from 1922, directed by F.W. Murnau. <sighs> I, I, I've seen clips of this film. I've even seen the Werner Herzog remake. You have? Uh, I have, yes, okay. but I've never seen the original. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And then we are watching so this more with... more German Expressionism. More German Expressionism, yes. Bring on the German Expressionism. And then um, that we are pairing it with... Um, originally, I wanted to pair it with uh, Let the Right One In uh, by Thomas Alfredson from... Um, but Danny had already seen that. I think that was 2008, was it? 2008, that film came out, yeah. Um, yeah, great, I had seen film. that one. In a bit so, to learn Swedish. <laughs> so, um, they're great. It's a great, great film, great, great vampire film. It's originally the one I wanted to pair it with. 
but we ended up I ended up going with um a girl walks home alone at night from 2014 directed by Anna Lily Amapour um uh, what can only be described as an Iranian black and white vampire story um, and that's my blind spot and that's all blind spot it's a less of an it's, it's not as an embarrassing blind spot as Nosferatu is for me so um yes no Golden Hawks Home and Own Lights uh debut feature film from Anna Lilian before so it'll be next week Nosferatu and that uh bring on the vampires yes bring on the vampires we have to let them in we have to welcome them otherwise they won't <laughs> they have to be let invited yes yeah we've got we got to let them in uh let them in uh join us for join that us. <laughs> Join us as I as I hover uh, uh, next to your next to your bedroom window, tapping <laughs> on the on the on the window with a with a smile. Join us for for that. Um, so with that in mind, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kinojoan, and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at Nikesh Chandler, and my website is supertomovision.com. Uh, as Danny said at the start of our podcast, please contact us via email. Um, let us know your favourite horror films. Uh, let us know what you thought of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, when you saw that for the first time. Uh, it'd be really, really interesting to know. Um, so that's our keenatomic at gmail.com and our Twitter is keenatomic uh, at keenatomic on Twitter. Uh, look out for, for Danny's Halloween costume. Yeah, I'm going to share pictures. Um, <laughs> okay, gonna share the pictures. So look out for that. Um, with that in mind, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. Bye.